right, you guys, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and get started. I feel like everybody that's going to be in here is already in here, and if people aren't here yet, then too bad for them, I guess. Um, hey, my name is Mark Snee, as I said in there, and I'm just grateful for this opportunity to join with you guys uh, on, honestly, one of the topics that both fires me up. I get so excited about this topic and also terrifies me, and it's a weird kind of a dichotomy because something like sharing our faith uh, can be relegated, at least for most Christians, into the realm of that's what like the super Christians do or the SEAL Team 6 of Christians who know all the objections, know all the answers for all the objections that are out there. That's what they do. And for the rest of us, we get to admire those who kind of have um, this skill and this um, ability to navigate whatever objections come their way. And, and, and it's easy to kind of just pass off responsibility towards all of us to instead be upon those who are just like the experts in the field. And I'm here today, this morning, with you guys, so grateful to tell you that this role of how to answer the unbeliever, apologetics, um, evangelism, sharing our faith, sharing what we believe is a responsibility for every single one of us based on God's word. And because of that, there's this sense of excitement and this sense of trepidation where there's like this feeling of, man, well, what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? What if they challenge me in a way that makes me look stupid? And so therefore, a lot of times we just don't even start the conversation. And today, one of my goals with you all is to work through the confidence that all of us have in the Word of God, and to be able to do that effectively. And so I want to start out with a working definition. I want to walk through this topic with you all and hopefully leave about 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. So whatever questions might be on your heart, I'd love to hear them and hopefully address as many questions as possible. The other thing that I have that's a very practical resource, I brought, uh, brought these from a buddy of mine who I go um, share the gospel with. We go to college campuses. Um, we're outside uh, on sidewalks of abortion clinics seeking to minister to women that feel like there's no other option, uh, seeing God use us to, to, to rescue um, babies out there. We've, by God's grace, seen that happen. Um, but this is just a resource that essentially answers a lot of the top objections to the Christian faith. And so um, that is a resource available at the front of the room. We got two stacks up here on the piano, one stack over here, and then one stack in the back, um, if that is of interest to you. Working definition is this. This is from a pastor that I would highly recommend looking into to be able to equip yourself more and more with um, this topic of apologetics, how to, how to answer the unbeliever. Vodi Bauckham says it this way, apologetics is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. Knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. I would add to this definition, not just effectively, but with winsome humility, with tact, with gentleness and respect, as we're going to see a, a verse in God's word command us to be able to do here in a second. And so, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. Now, the Christian worldview is a biblical worldview, okay? Now, I'm talking to all of you who are in the same cultural context as me, 
Some of you have varia- uh, variations of, um, you know, high school culture. Um, there's different words and phrases that I'm just learning, maybe uh, uh, from my 15-year-old son. Like, we never used that word when I was in high school, so tell me what that means. But for the most part, we all kind of say the same thing. Uh, we speak the same language. We understand c- contextually in our culture ideas and phrases and the do's and the don'ts. And so think of it this way. All of us are wearing these glasses through which we see the world. Our culture tells us to put these glasses on, also known as a worldview. And so the way that we look through and interpret the world around us is how we view the world. It's our worldview. It's the glasses that we put on. So some of us coming in here today don't even realize that we're coming in here with um, assumptions, presuppositions, things that are definitely not in line with the truth of God's word. And as we read God's word, we're challenged, right? We're convicted. We're called to repentance, which is a Greek word, metanoia, which means to change your mind. We are called constantly to have our minds changed to align with truth. We live in a culture that celebrates error and half-truth as though it's ultimate truth. And so things like radical self-expression and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth are catchphrases in our culture that ultimately come um, in conflict when we read the Word of God. And therefore, we engage in worldview conflict. And the Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. Literally, it's like we're looking through the lenses of Scripture at how the world actually works. And the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. 1 Peter 3.15, this is where we get our word apologetics, and I'll define it for us. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter is telling this group of Christians that are living in a very hostile culture, a very pluralistic culture, a culture that celebrates sexual immorality as though it's not, that it's something to be indulged in, celebrated, and um, shouted from the rooftops. Might be a little relatable to our culture right now. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, what is the priority according to this verse? Is it to make a defense? This is where we get our word in the Greek, apologia, or uh, apologia, which means to make a legal defense for the trustworthiness of the claims that you are making. It's this idea of making a defense for truth. Is that the priority, though, according to this verse? What's the priority? What comes before this? Sanctify Christ as Lord. What does that mean to sanctify Christ as Lord? God in heaven sent forth his son, becoming a human being 2,000 years ago, born of the virgin, lives a perfectly sinless life, ends up going to the cross to fulfill his mission to bleed and die on a Roman style of execution was buried, raised back to life on the third day as he promised, and proclaims repentance and faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins to everyone. 
everywhere. Not only does he do that, but more importantly, he leaves his what to do that for him in his place. His followers, his disciples. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, if you're taking notes. Jesus says, all authority will one day be given to me in heaven and on earth. What does it say? All authority has been, past tense. Jesus is Lord now. He is king now from heaven. He is reigning. He is ruling. And we as followers of Christ are living in light of that truth that is ultimate. Jesus is Lord. Sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Because Jesus is Lord now over every president, over every dictator, over every commanding officer of whatever army there is on the earth, Jesus is the highest authority that there ever was, that there ever will be. And because of that, we can have confidence to make a defense for this hope that's within us. And this hope, the reason why Peter says this is because people are going to be asking Christians in his day, why are you still hopeful when people are obviously against you? When you're losing your property or you're losing your social status for not participating in the orgies of our day. That's just normal stuff that happened back in the day. And you're saying that that's unethical according to God? These things caused a curious question to come about towards Christians. Why is there hope in you still? Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they're all opposing you. And yet you still have this hope. Why? God's word says, make that defense. Give a reason to everyone who asks you to give that hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so here's the deal. For my uh, maybe more than confident high school guys in the room, I know because I was one, there's just this natural youthful arrogance that we kind of struggle with. And so I'm seeing one guy like, yeah, that's right. Um, That just happens. That's the stage of life we're at. And here's the deal. When we talk about a topic like apologetics and how to give a reasonable answer to opposition or opposing worldviews, um, a lot of us that might just like getting into debates are excited about a topic like this because we feel like, man, I have more power on my side. I know what to say when an objection comes. And therefore, dude, I'm just going to win arguments left and right. Look, we are not called to win arguments as much as we are called to win souls. The proverb says, he who wins souls is wise. I'm going to be able to defend my position as a Christian with the talk of what we're talking about. But if I'm not looking to win the soul of the person that I'm talking about, who is just as valuable as you or I, if they don't know Jesus, they're just, they're under the wrath of God, according to John 3.30. They're still abiding. The wrath of God abides on them. And therefore, I need to prioritize sharing with them the only hope, which is through faith in Jesus, to be reconciled to God. And so in the midst of a culture like ours, we come across many different opposing statements Maybe some of you have heard some of these statements before. I don't believe the Bible. The temptation is to hear that as a Christian when somebody says, I don't believe the Bible, so stop using it. What's the temptation? It's to go from using it to hearing that saying, oh, if they don't believe it, I'm not going to quote it. I'm not going to use it. That would be as absurd as this illustration. 
Okay, imagine two old school knights coming together to battle. The first knight gets off his horse, unsheaths his sword, looks at knight number two, ready to fight. And knight number two gets off his uh, horse, doesn't have a sword, looks at knight number one and says, I don't believe in thine sword. Now, knight number one has two options. He can either, with a confused look on his face, put his sword away and start articulating with eloquence why swords exist, why he should believe in the power of a sword and how dangerous it is. He could do that. Or he could do what? Use the sword and win. The sword's going to be able to be um, a defense in and of itself, right? Too many times Christians will take an objection like, I don't believe the Bible. Why are you using a book that I already said I don't believe in? And they'll say, okay, well, then let's put it to the side and let's just argue from maybe the grounds of neutrality. The problem with neutrality is that Jesus tells us, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no neutrality when talking about God. And so for the Christian to have confidence that we're either for Christ or against Christ, there is no middle ground, that gives me the ability to therefore not put aside my most powerful weapon in a discussion about who this God is that reveals himself through his son, through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and to use it with tact and wisdom and faithfulness. Now, there's a number of different objections that we come across. Um, wasn't the Bible just made up to control people? Any of you heard that one? It's the opiate of the masses, as Nietzsche said. God is just a fairy tale. Why do you believe in fairy tales? I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. Any of you come across that? Yeah. Or I was thinking about a Macklemore song that I heard a few years back uh, from the song Same Love. He says this, we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. So whatever, whatever uh, opposition, whatever statement you are experiencing in conversation in hopes of sharing the gospel with people, these types of objections will come up. These type of objections are normal and many others. And so we don't have the time to dissect every one of them. Maybe if you have a further question about any one of these and how I would navigate the question, you can ask in our Q&A time in a little bit. But just to maybe hit the last two briefly, when somebody says I'm spiritual, not religious, typically what they mean by that is that they have a form of spirituality where they connect to God as they know him. And so it's very popular in our culture to talk about things like transcendental meditation, kundalini yoga, these practices that unlock the hidden chakras within us to therefore align us with ultimate spiritual reality. The problem with a lot of those worldviews that infuse themselves even into some Christian, uh, Christian culture, uh, Christian spheres of influence, is that it's forms of paganism as defined by Scripture. It's forms of getting to God on our terms when God says, don't go down those paths. Don't try and contact spirits. Don't try and contact departed, deceased relatives. Those things are an abomination to me. And they'll lead you down paths you ultimately don't want to go. 
I have friends that talk about real spiritual experiences that they have. I was talking to one friend in particular after he told me all these encounters he had with spiritual beings, higher uh, uh, ascended masters. I said, look, how did you get there? He's like, oh, you just take ayahuasca and you have this spiritual experience. I'm like, man, I don't doubt that you're having spiritual experiences, but how do you know they're not lying to you? And he said, well, how do you know you, how do you, know you love your wife? And I'm like, because God's word calls me to love her in a sacrificial way, emulating Jesus' love for his bride, the church. He didn't like that answer. <laughs> but I was able to use God's word to defend the biblical worldview that is truth. Now, here's the deal. When somebody says, we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago, and it's a popular song lyric, it's tempting to put into question, man, can I really believe this? Did God really say? And in the, uh, the song, Same Love, it's all about the celebration of uh, same-sex marriage. And so it, it's this cultural pursuit to undermine what God has clearly said, what God has clearly commanded us because he loves us. It's a constant um, battle that we face. And so here's, here's the challenge for most of us in here. Here's part of the cultural lenses that we're looking through and maybe even evaluating what I'm sharing right now. You're looking through the cultural lens of the 11th commandment. What's the 11th commandment? Thou shalt be nice. What's the problem with the 11th commandment? It's not a thing. <laughs> it's not in Scripture. It's what our culture will say to Christians that are trying to bring up truth in the midst of a culture where people love to make up truth on their own apart from God. And so when you have a conversation that develops a little bit of tension, we have a cultural aversion to any type of tension. Therefore, our assumption and the lens that we look through a tense conversation is, this is tense, I need to, I need to squelch this tension. I need to just agree to disagree, and let's just continue to be friends. Yet the scriptures never leave us with that as an option. The apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you see, he debated with people. Debating involves tense conversations, but yet with gentleness and respect. That word reverence means respect. I can respectfully disagree with a person. It doesn't mean that I hate them. It means that I love them enough to press in and have truthful conversations with them. Now, a good question to ask the person who makes some of these statements is this. How did you come to that conclusion? You say the Bible is a fair, or God is a fairy tale. What led you to believe that? See, what you do with just asking good questions is you put the spotlight from yourself being on the defense stand to instead putting the spotlight back on them, making a statement that they need to justify. It's easy to make statements. It's much harder to justify why you believe what you believe. And what you'll find is as you put the spotlight back on them is that before long, most people are like, uh, well, I just, uh, and, uh, and then they try to get away from actually defending their position because they don't have a reasonable defense. They just have a soundbite they've heard, and they are able to regurgitate. Now, again, we're not exposing their worldview just to say, ha, gotcha, I won the fight, I won the argument. We're exposing their worldview to ultimately show them, look, brother, sister, you're, you're standing on sinking sand, and I love you enough to tell you about the rock 
who calls us to build our lives on him. Because when we build our lives on him, when the trials of life that will come to all of us come, only those who have been built on the rock are going to stand. Amen? And so we have these conversations in love. Another good question to ask, and these are just a couple of practical questions that we get to ask people. Frank Turek, he's a great um, apologist. I would encourage you to look him up on YouTube, um, get some practical uh, ideas of how to share your faith and defend it. He asks this question a lot to people who clearly object to the Christian worldview. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if there's any time of hesitation in their response, typically that silence speaks loudly of the true reason for their rejection of Christianity. In other words, their rejection of Christianity is not based on evidence, but it's based on morality. In other words, I don't want Christianity to be true. true. I don't want to become a Christian because I love my sin. When we can help people to navigate the road back to God's truth, John 3, 17 through 21, Jesus tells us men don't come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We love darkness rather than light. That's our problem. So a couple weeks ago, I'm having a conversation with a self-proclaimed atheist who says, I don't believe in God. And I say, man, I just, I don't know how you land on the position where um, time and chance acting on matter creates the ability for us to have this intelligible conversation right now. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And it was funny to see his reaction. He goes, huh. Now, what does that huh mean? I don't know fully, but I can assume that for a second, I put a spotlight back on him to defend why he believes what he believes. And through the course of the conversation with humility and respect to this self-proclaimed atheist, I got to tell him, look, um, Jesus is the only reason why we're able to have this intelligible conversation. God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. And I'm having these conversations with people that God has created in his image that know that he exists. Now, man, I'm... I'm cutting into my Q&A time, but I hope that uh, these things are are more helpful than maybe some general Q&A. This is also the confidence that we get to have in having conversation with people who claim to reject God, who claim to not know enough. Apologetics is simply exposing the suppression of truth. We are engaging in worldview conflicts. The Christian worldview or philosophy of life and the non-Christian worldview or unbelieving philosophy of life. Someone may say, I don't believe God exists. Or the Bible is a myth. Romans 1, Paul tells us through the Holy Spirit who reveals truth what is actually going on. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the issue. We suppress the truth that has already been given to us. Because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. God has already made evident to every person on the planet that he exists. Look at verse 20. Through this mean, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Someone might try to convince you, I don't believe God exists. That's like night number two saying, 
I don't believe in the power of thy sword. You look at them and say, no, no, you know God exists because he's made you to know that he exists. So you, you move past that point and into the point that your issue is that you love sin just like me. Our issue is that we think that we know how to run our lives better than God does. That's the problem. We suppress the truth. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. See, it's here where we typically experience worldview conflict. Our goal is to engage with the unbeliever in an effective way. We're kind of caught in the corner here. Let me ask you, when the unbeliever claims to not believe God exists and we read scripture that tells us from God himself that he does, in fact, make every person on the planet to know that he exists, do we believe what the unbeliever says about him or herself? Or do we believe what God says about the unbeliever? That's the challenge. And I've saved hours of hours of conversations trying to convince people exists by just believing what God's already said about his existence, about his revelation. Sometimes we can think that answering an unbeliever effectively is just to convince an atheist that there is, in fact, a God. And we walk away saying, man, I did a good job. That's not necessarily doing a good job. Doing a good job, according to Scripture, is getting to the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God to save people, and the Spirit of God is the one who is at work in an unseen way. Jesus says, this is the work of the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John 16, 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's doing work that oftentimes we don't even see. But as we're having conversations in love with humility and respect to people that are just as much bearing the image of God as we are, we know that the Holy Spirit is doing work because God has revealed that he is. We get to trust in the revelation of God. And that brings tremendous confidence. There's a lot of other verses that can be mentioned here. Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is gold. Jesus is the one that because of him, because he exists, we have wisdom, we have knowledge in the ultimate sense. And so many of us come across points of time in our faith where we struggle with doubts. You might be coming in here saying, yeah, I want to answer the unbeliever, but there's unbelief in me. Welcome to the club I remember early on when I became a Christian, I was 19, I prayed that God would strengthen my faith because I thought that my faith was hold, holding on by a thread. And as I prayed, God, give me more faith, it was like he gave me a picture of that thread and it snapped. I'm like, what was that? That makes no sense. Now I feel like I'm totally disconnected from any even semblance of feeling near to you, God. Where are you? Maybe you can relate to that. Over 70%, this uh, Christianity Today article says, over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Now look at this. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence. 
that was huge. When I walked through my journey of severe doubt, where I was thinking maybe this thing is a myth, but I'm too scared to actually verbalize my questions, I went through a dark phase where I didn't want to mess with other people's faith. And it was an arrogant phase because I realized, man, these aren't uncommon questions. Can we really trust the Bible? How do we know Christianity is true? Was this just made up? Things like these and helpful resources that are out there to strengthen our faith exist. And God sent me on this journey to read books like More Than a Carpenter by Joshua McDowell. Strengthen my faith in the, in the factual, evidential um, eyewitness testimony of those who wrote the New Testament. You get to see this mountain of evidence that's trustworthy against the molehill of claims against it. And my faith was strengthened. But ultimately, at the end of the, end of the day, high school student, Romans 10, 17 says it perfectly. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You might be coming in here today saying, I feel so spiritually dry, and yet I feel encouraged because I'm at camp. I feel closer to God when I'm at camp. I have these spiritual experiences. Well, absolutely you do. You're immersed in God's word. It makes sense. But do you have a steady diet of his word through the rest of the year? Because if I had tried to survive by not eating but once a year, for a week, I wouldn't survive more than a month, right? And yet a lot of us wonder, why am I spiritually dry? Well, how much am I in the word of Christ? That's what builds faith, it builds trust, it builds confidence in the God who has revealed himself and who loves us, amen? Hey, uh, we have a couple minutes. Are there any pressing questions? And I'll stick around afterwards if you have other questions, um, but we have a mic here. We can run it over here. We got a question right here if you want to Thank you so much for doing that. How can we present the gospel to an unbeliever with gentleness and humility? Um, so there's, a th there's thousands of ways to get to Jesus. Okay, there's thousands of conversation starters. We don't have the time to get there. A couple of ones that I really uh, appreciate are the direct approach. So if we're out on the college campus, I'll say something like, hey, we're asking people their thoughts on, um, on Jesus Christ. What are your thoughts on him? He's a controversial figure in history. What are your thoughts on him? Or um, that's one. That leads into spiritual conversation. Uh, another question that's a good conversation starter is, and this comes from Evangelism Explosion. It's a resource that's really good to look into. If you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to look at you and say, why should I let you into heaven? How would you respond to him? It's a good question because it helps them to understand what they're hoping in. Most people will say, well, I'm a pretty good person, and therefore I should be let in. That's when you know they're not a Christian because no one is good, only Jesus. And he's our only hope to get to the Father, right? So those are two examples. There's, again, thousands. This will help you uh, to get you the good linked resources to further dive into that. It's a great question. Any other questions real quick when we have a minute left? Um, let's keep it to students in here. I, I forgot to mention students instead of counselors. Um, just I want to hear from students primarily. Um, yes. And then counselors, if you have pending questions, you can ask after. That's One great. response I've gotten is like, how do you know which translation is true? Because there's so many translations. So right. That's a good response to that. Whoa, my voice just cracked. Um, yeah, which translation is true? How do we know which one's true? That's a great question, and that's a challenge to biblical um, inerrancy. Uh, 
a lot of people, when they say that, don't realize that what they're actually saying is, um, which translation of the original manuscripts can we rely on? So the original manuscripts, there are thousands of copies that trace back to the original. There's nothing like the Bible. The Bible is written over a 1,500-year time span on three different continents by over 40 different authors. It is a compilation of 66 separate books written from people that were uh, fishermen all the way up to kings and everyone in between talking about the same God. There's nothing like it. Nothing holds a candle to the uniqueness of the Bible. Now, the translations that we have are ways that we understand the original language. Thankfully, the original language was so descriptive that if there's a question about, you know, ESV versus NASB versus NIV, we can look back to the original language in the Greek in the New Testament and see what one actually translates most accurately. The translations that we have are upwards of 99 to 100% accurate to the original languages, so we can have confidence. Good question. All right, you guys, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we'll see you later.